If you would, please open your Bibles with me once again to the book of the Psalms. Today we're looking at Psalm 76. Psalm 76. We read here in Psalm 76 and verse 1. In Judah, that is, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is God known, and his name is great in Israel. Now this, of course, speaks to God's people, God's elect amongst the Jews and his elect amongst the Gentiles. You see, not only can we say this of earthly Israel, I mean, God revealed himself to that physical nation. Paul says in Romans how that the Jewish people had advantage, had advantage chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And so when we read here in verse 1, in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel. This speaks to God's spiritual Israel. You see, God is known to his people and he dwells and his people. And it's my ardent prayer that what is being said here of his church applies to us here as his local church here in New Canny. Often people ask, what is your church? And my answer is that I believe and pray that truly we are members of his body, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it can be said of our church here in New Canny, we both know him and exalt his great name. My friend, do you know him? Do you know God? Is God exalted in your heart this morning? That is, do you attribute greatness to him? I mean, do we revere his great name? My friend, if you know him, and these two go together, if you know him, you're going to revere his great name. Sadly, and this is a fearful thing. In most so-called churches today, God is not revered. Rather than revere him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, rather than speak of him as the sovereign, they speak of him as a gentleman. You know, a God that wants to save you, but ultimately can't unless you let him. They have this idea that when the Father sent his Son into this fallen world, that he merely provided an opportunity for you to make what he did work. As if God was, you know, hoping for the best and that he made salvation possible and that ultimately he left everything up to us. After all, he's a gentleman and, you know, he wouldn't want to infringe upon man's sacred free will. Well, is that what we learn in the gospel, beloved? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And look there with me beginning... In verse 21. Now, this, this is just after the head of the human family, naturally speaking, our federal head, Adam, willfully rebelled against God. Now, remember, the human race didn't fall because of Eve. It was true that Eve was deceived. But our race fell because of Adam's sinful rebellion. You see, because of Adam's sin, both he and his prodigy went from being in the way, the truth, and the life to losing it all. And we became spiritually dead. And after the fall, our fallen head thought he could cover man's rebellion. And so knowing that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What darkness. 
They thought they could cover their shame, sin, guilt, and disobedience with the labor of their own hands. And God sets forth the gospel of our salvation in verse 21. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, if we read this verse the way men pervert the gospel today, into that message which is no gospel at all, they would have you to believe that God's word declares, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and laid them out for Adam and his wife to put on. Now, the only problem with that is this. That's not the gospel. My friend, do you not know? Do you not know the exceeding greatness of God's power to us word who believe according to the working of God's mighty power? Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and God clothed them. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I love this power of the gospel. God's power. Ephesians chapter 1. And look there with me in verse 19. Believing sinner, you didn't make a decision to accept Christ. It is just that you went from not believing to believing according to the working of his mighty power. All of us by nature are in a tomb of unbelief a dead, dark tomb of rebellion. And we're dead in trespasses and in sins. You remember when Lazarus came forth from the tomb? Our Lord said, and this is recorded for us in John 11, John chapter 11, verse 43. Our Lord didn't say to Lazarus, Lazarus, raise your hand. Lazarus, make the first step. Lazarus was four days dead. His, his, his body stinketh, says the scriptures. And it says there in verse 43, And when he thus had spoken, when our Lord Jesus Christ had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth according to the working of his mighty power. And that is a picture how every one of us is saved, mightily saved by God's saving grace. You see, he's the one who sets you free, beloved. And so these two things in Psalm 76, verse 1, are only known among God's people, God's elect. You see, if a man was saved, then he would never say, I got saved, or I did this, or I did that to be saved, or, you know, that he believed that God was trying to save him, and then ultimately he finally let God save him. My friend, if you ever hear anybody say God's trying to save you, let me tell you most assuredly, they don't know God. You see, you can't have God open this book to you. Or open your heart to read the gospel of your salvation in the pages of this book and say that you let God save you. I love what Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus. Beloved, ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You see, Paul was not saying, if you've heard me. For Paul knew full well that if God was to save someone, they would be given a revelation from the Father in power. That is, they would hear him and be taught by him as the truth is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is exactly what our Lord declared, remember? It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Speaking of God's elect, every man therefore that hath heard 
and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. You see, that's what false religion denies. They deny the power, the authority, the greatness of God's quickening power. And so, being objects of His mercy and grace, being taught of the Father, we declare what He declares, what he declares about Himself. How that He does as He pleases, when He pleases, the way He pleases, with whom He pleases. You see, my friend, He saves whom He will. He said, my hand's not short that I can't save you. You see, if he wants to save you, if he wants to save you, he will save you. And so when we declare that he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy, we're not afraid to declare that. That doesn't offend us. Rather, because of his grace, that comforts us. It comforts us to know afresh again and again how that he always accomplishes what he wills. And certainly he uses men to accomplish his purpose to save his people. But he does so only to show his greatness in accomplishing his purpose, grace, in spite of what we are and who we are. You see, my friends, somebody knows God and somebody doesn't. And beloved, I believe we know God, and I pray that he will be pleased to continue to make himself known to his people as we preach the gospel of his darling son to this generation. In our bulletin, I describe our church this way. And I pray it is indeed his church, but you understand what I'm saying. Our local congregation, I describe us this way. We're an imperfect church with an imperfect pastor, and yet by God's undeserved grace, we preach, believe, and know the perfect gospel of our never-failing Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do I mean by that? Beloved, do you know what a miracle our church is? Our God has assembled us together to hear receive and rejoice in the perfect gospel of our never-failing Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. I mean, I trust we're not them of the synagogue of Satan. Remember what the Lord said of the reprobate in false religion? He said, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Do you realize what our Lord is saying? He is saying, in that day, I'm going to say to a multitude of professing Christians, I never knew you. I never loved you. I will make it known to every religious pretender that I have not loved them. But you, beloved believing sinner, you who believe on my darling son, by my grace, I have everlastingly loved you. Our Lord declares, behold, I will make them that say that they are a Christian and are not those who believe that there are true Israelites and are not, to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee and not them. You see, beloved, Christ is where he's declared to be sovereign and does as he pleases. My friend, you're in a place where we know the God who will and shall save his people. I mean, if you want to listen to the idol of a man's imagination, the message of Antichrist, of that God that wants to save you, but can only do so only if you'll let him. Well, you're free to go there if you want to. But God's people know him, and where you find God's people gathered together, not only do they know God, but further, it's a place where his name is great, and he is glorified. You see, wherever you find a place where God is both known and his name is exalted, that's where you'll find his church. Lively stones gathered together by his grace. You see, because of his grace to his people, 
he reveals himself to them and his name is exalted. That's what happens in his church. That's what happens in Judah. That's what happens where God's people live because he's gracious to them and he reveals himself not only to them, but ever so blessedly in them. You see, in one place you'll find the followers of Antichrist there, and in another place you'll find the followers of Christ, and he's in the midst of them. In one place, the synagogue of Satan, teaching men that the precious blood of Christ bought nothing more than another chance for man to do the right thing. And you know what they're doing? Our Lord tells us plainly. They say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Remember what Paul said? He is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So not everyone who professes to believe God actually believes him. Now, I know it's very popular in our day and age to misrepresent what your opponent is saying in order to you know, set up a straw man and beat it to death. But my friend, I'm not misrepresenting what they're saying with respect to the work of Christ. They really do believe and teach others that with his precious blood, our Lord merely made salvation possible. Just another chance for a man to do the right thing and a long history of chances. I mean, they think the covenant of God's grace, the contract of God's grace has conditions to be met by the creature. Well, I'm here to tell you every one of those conditions has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ and not any of his elect. You see, his precious blood redeemed a people, a people that no man can number, a people that, God know, that, that knows God and his name is great among them. Verse 2, Psalm 76. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. And not only do they know God and fear God, and his name is great among them, but further, he dwells among them. Is that not a comfort, beloved? He lives among us. You see, his dwelling place is in Zion, in his church, in his people. That's where he lives. Indeed, wherever he has revealed himself and wherever he has exalted his mighty name, that's where he tabernacles. You see, beloved, he lives among his people. And by his presence among us, we have life, joy, peace, and light, and every good thing. Now, this is significant, for this is the difference between Israel and all the other nations. Moses said, Lord, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In effect, Moses is saying, Lord, thy will be done. Be present with us. And that's the point of all of it. You see, beloved, it's being with him. What's the difference between us and others? Beloved, we're just like other men, save for one gracious, gracious, merciful difference. God is with us. Beloved, he's the one who makes us to differ. And by his grace, God is with us. And because we're kept by his power, one day we will be with him. Right now, in this time state, he is with us. And beloved, when we put off this earthly shell, we'll be with him. Now, though it doesn't look like it to this unbelieving world, most assuredly, beloved, know this. God is with us. And one of these days, we're going to be with him. Our God and Savior prayed, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, 
be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so, beloved, he's with us now. But one of these days, beloved, we're going to be with him. David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so we see here in our portion, God's people know God and he is in his church. You see, beloved, we know him and we exalt him and he dwells with us. And here's the fourth thing. Beloved, he protects us and he keeps us. Verse three. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle. Beloved, our shepherd, he kills the lion and the bear. That's what David pictured. He killed the lion and the bear and he giveth his own life for the sheep. And what is the result of that? He says, my sheep shall never perish. Not one hair of our head will fall without him. And here's what we say in response to all that. Verse four, Lord, thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. His name is great. And so we declare him to be great, glorious and excellent. When we say our God is glorious, we're just telling it like it is, my friend. His name is great, and he's great in our midst. And we tell it forth, and we publish his greatness in the gospel of his dear son. He doeth all things well. Everything he does is right. That's why we have peace and comfort. We know God. We don't question his providential dealings with us. Now, I know, beloved, things can be hard on the flesh. I know we doubt. I know we worry. But, beloved, we also have that peace with which passeth all understanding that keeps our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. And we have peace because we know who he is and because he's glorious and excellent. He does all things well. We say with Job of old, I know that thou can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. We say with the sweet psalmist of Israel, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We say with the apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Beloved, he's excellent beyond our ability to even perceive it. We say with that centurion, Lord, we know authority when we see it, and we know that thou has all authority. Just say the word. And he's excellent in power, glorious in mercy, truth and love. And by his grace, beloved, we know him. We say with Paul, we're not redeemed with the corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Beloved, we know him and will tell everybody that's willing to listen, salvation is of the Lord. He purposed it. He saved us before we ever were. He purchased it. Salvation is Christ crucified. He publishes it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He perpetrates it with his very hand. He takes hold of us and lifts us up, out, up out of the depths and he perpetuates it kept by the power of God unto salvation. All right. Verse five, Psalm 76, verse five, the stout, how the, the stout hearted Psalm 76, verse five, the stout hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep. And none of the men of might have found their hands. 
none of men of might have found their hands. Remarkable. None of the men, those skilled warriors, no doubt, can't even find their own hands when God is opposed to them. Verse 6. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. Thou, even thou, art to be feared, and who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Now, this is a reminder to us how that David had real enemies, enemies he faced daily. And this also serves as a reminder of this spiritual truth. We too, like David, have real enemies, enemies that we must face every day. And so what do we, what do we have to face these real enemies? Beloved, we have a real Savior. Just as surely as David won those physical battles where the victory was given him by God, and he could feel it in his sword hand that God was with him, we too have real enemies, and we have a real Savior. That's what we learn here. Now, of course, when I say we have a real Savior, I'm not repeating the nonsense that we see everywhere where somebody says God is real. I mean, was that ever in question? Does anybody need to qualify that? My friend, did you ever wonder why the Bible doesn't say that God is real? Well, it's because that would be a foolish thing to assert. You see, faith is not believing that there is a real God. Faith is believing God. You see, lots of people believe in the existence of God, but faith is believing on him. And the Bible is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. You see, the existence of God is not in question. That never was. It never has been. The issue is when are you going to bow to him? When are you going to bow to him? Because, my friend, you're going to. The issue is when, and that issue is settled by him. My friend, do you know when you're going to bow to him? You'll bow to him exactly when he reveals himself to you. When he's pleased to reveal himself to you, you're going to bow, and if he does that through the preaching of the gospel, you'll be saved. Now, if he doesn't do that for you, and you find out, out about him after the day of salvation is over, you're still going to bow, but you'll never know him in grace, mercy, and love. And so while we have real enemies, beloved, so too we have a real Savior. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, very simply this. Our Lord actually saves his people. He actually and really saves his people. Whoever he wants to save, whoever he's pleased to save, whoever he died for, he shall save them from their sins. He said, I laid down my life for my sheep. And my friend, they are never going to perish. You see, he doesn't provide salvation. He doesn't point the way to, to salvation. Rather, he saves. He came to save his people from their sins, and he said, it is finished. Verse 8. Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. Now, when we see this word judgment, sometimes we limit its meaning to the wrath of God, and we think of him pouring out his wrath. And certainly that is one aspect of his judgment. But on the throne, as his judgment is heard from heaven, we see its effects upon the earth. You see, God is on the throne deciding everything. And so when a matter is judged, a verdict is given. And it is either yes or no. It is either life or death. It is either condemnation or no condemnation. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
You see, my friend, God's the one that decides. He's the judge, and he has caused judgment to be heard from heaven. Now, when did he do that? The earth feared and was still. The sun went out for a while. Can you imagine what it was like when God arose to judgment? Verse 9, to save all the meek of the earth. Now, that's pretty clear what's being talked about there. Judgment was heard from from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. And we're still talking about it in the year of our Lord, 2019. And they were talking about it before it ever happened. Now, it happened 2,000 years ago, and yet we are still talking about it. It's God saving all the meek of the earth. Who else can that be speaking of but Christ and him crucified? You see, in the cross of Christ, judgment was heard from heaven. The justice of God was displayed in its certainty, in its severity, and yet it was displayed to the saving of all the meek, setting forth how that God can judge the earth and still save. Beloved, he's going to save the meek, all of them. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. And this is what God did to save us. Again, verse 8, notice those two words, those two words there. Thou didst. Lord, thou did it. You see, he didn't just talk about it or try to do something. Beloved, he did it. From the cross in the earth, he declares, it is finished. And after he died, was buried three days and three nights, and he rose from the grave the third the third day, and he, and he declares in glory from the throne, it is done. You see, he caused his judgment to be heard from heaven when the Father poured out his wrath upon his only begotten Son, such a display of judgment like no one has ever seen or nor seen since, when our Heavenly Father poured out his wrath upon his only begotten Son for all our shame, for all our sins, the sins of his elect, his people, our Heavenly Father laid on him the iniquity of us all, beloved, and the Father punished him for that sin. What's the punishment for sin? What do our sins so justly deserve? What have our sins justly earned us? The wages of sin is death. God killed his own son, and the result is the salvation of the meek. He arose to display judgment in the earth, but also to save the meek, and he did both, beloved. He did both. He declared himself the great judge of the earth, and he saved his people in the very same act. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. My friend, nowhere in Scripture... Nowhere in God's word is there a place in that chain of grace where he waited on us to do anything. He did display his judgment and he did save the meek when Christ died on the cross. It was heard from heaven that God must and shall punish sin, all sin, every sin, my sin and your sin, beloved. When Christ died on the cross, it was heard from heaven that God is holy. When Christ died on the cross, it was heard from heaven that God will have perfect justice in his world. And something else was heard from heaven that day. How that God will be just and justify the ungodly freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And when you hear this from heaven, when God reveals this from heaven in your heart, 
you'll know that's what he did on the cross. When it pleased our Heavenly Father to bruise his darling son, when you hear from heaven the way in which God declared at the cross, and so there's a conclusion that must be arrived at, and this is key. Verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. You see, what God did at the cross in declaring his judgment and his salvation, we see how that even the worst that men can do is going to be made to serve God's eternal purposes and redound ultimately to his everlasting praise. I mean, when you think about the power of God, who has many enemies, but the very worst that his enemies can do will accomplish exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. When they vent their wrath against him, when they try to destroy him, remember, they tried to discredit him. They tried to murder him. And everything accomplished exactly the opposite of what they wanted. You talk about power. How are you going to harm him? How are you going to hurt him? Now, it may appear to the world that Christ's enemies had the upper hand that day. I mean, by all accounts, physically speaking, it would seem so. But when you see Christ laying down his life for his sheep, giving his life, soul, an offering for sin, you see, in the very act of his giving his life a ransom for many, he wasn't defeated by his enemies. Rather, he was defeating them. You see, though he knows of the agony of dying for your sins, beloved, he knows nothing of the agony of defeat. In verse 3, it says, he breaks the bow of the enemy. How did he do that? By giving himself a ransom for his people. We read of him in verse 5, spoiling the stout-hearted, and he, and he destroys every enemy. How did he do that? Beloved, he did it by giving his life as a ransom on Calvary's tree. That's where he crushed the serpent's head. And the result is that sin shall no more have dominion over us. He's the victor over that enemy. Our sin, our greatest enemy, has no more dominion because our king has defeated it. And so the result is that Satan's head is crushed, as was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 3. He's the victor over that enemy too. Our arch enemy, the one who deceived Eve in the garden. Well, how are we to view that? Did Satan get his way then? Did he get the upper hand? Well, he may have thought so, but my friend Satan has never had the upper hand. He has never had his way. For you see, it's only God that has his way. Even though people talk about, you know, let God have his way. Beloved, nobody else has ever had his way but God. And he's never not had his way. I mean, the absurdity you hear in false religion. Let God have his way. What nonsense. My friend, have you not heard? He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. And so, beloved, the result of his victory upon the cross is that captivity is led, led captive. Even death itself is destroyed. That's the final enemy. And we read this in God's word. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And all of this in the very teeth of all of earth's and hell's opposition. Oh, the power of Christ that this reveals. Even the wrath of man shall praise thee. It won't thwart thee. It won't hinder thee in any way, much less defeat thee. Rather, the wrath of man will just praise him. Remember, they all said, we will rid ourselves of the one we, that we hate. 
and in doing so, they did what God's hand and counsel determined before to be done. You see, they were complicit in accomplishing the very purpose that they set out to thwart, the exalting of the Savior and the putting of man in the dust and all of his enemies under his footstool. They unwittingly advanced God's eternal purpose of grace toward his people in Christ Jesus. And included in that purpose is that all who oppose him, all who reject him, all who despise his law, his person, and his grace will be made his footstool. And so we look to him, our invincible, never-failing Savior, and we say, surely, surely the wrath of man will praise thee. And if man has anything in his black heart that will not ultimately redound to the praise of God and his Son, God will not allow it to see the light of day. For the remainder of wrath, the wrath that's not going to praise him, he'll restrain. In his people is God known, and his name is great among his people. Beloved, his name is great in his church, is it not? How can it not be? I mean, if we're made to know who he is, he must increase and we must decrease. Man's wrath literally praised him in that the words which were the expression of the wrath were in so many cases, by God's good providence, both true of him and exalted him. Remember, when they scourged and mocked our Lord Jesus Christ, they put that reed in his hand and smashed that crown of thorns upon his head. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. The wrath of man was praising him that day because that's exactly who he is. And God caused them in spite of themselves to write it over his head as he hung on the cross, written in three languages. King of the Jews. In order to defame him, they said, This man eateth with publicans and sinners. And that's just praising him as our Savior. Now, they didn't want to praise him, but they did. Beloved, what a comfort that God's only begotten Son would stoop so low as to sit at the table with a sinner like me and a sinner like you. When Judas met him in the garden to betray him and he greeted him with a kiss, he said, Hail, Master. You see, Judas couldn't help himself. I mean, how else are you going to address the Son of God? For he is the Master. Even in the agony of betrayal and regret, Judas was forced to say, I've betrayed the innocent blood, the innocent blood. And God arranged it so that his enemies could not even say his name without praising him. Now, they said it in disgust, contempt, and disdain. But even those demons that possessed that man in Matthew 8, they cried out, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? You know what they're saying? They're saying he's going to save his people from their sins. That's why his name is Jesus. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah saves. Salvation is of Jehovah. You see, no matter how you say his name, you're praising him. You can't even say it in wrath without praising him. But our text is not limited to the words of man's wrath, but so too all of the acts of man's wrath will praise the Lord. We've seen that The ultimate act of man's wrath and depravity did nothing but further his purpose and exalt him on a high. Nowhere is God in all of his persons, all of his offices, and all of his attributes exalted like at the cross. You see, everything that his enemies did there just lifted his name higher. And so everything man does in defiance of God, God will overrule for his own glory and grace. Just like at the cross, All the acts of man's wrath will praise the Lord. And the ones that do not, he'll restrain. 
Remember King Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked, proud king? His decree was if anybody worships anybody else, I'll kill him. And of course, the Lord had three people there that wouldn't bow. Remember what our Lord said to Elijah? There were 3,000 that wouldn't bow their knee to Baal because he said, I've reserved them. Beloved, according to the election of grace, there's a remnant. And that's who these three were. And so they wouldn't bow their knee to that false God. And that's the same reason those 3,000 wouldn't. Because God, according to his loving, powerful, eternal grace, had reserved them. So why did he cast them into the fiery furnace? Did he have anything personal against them? Not at all. So why did he do it? They said, we're going to worship our God. They said, there's just one God and we're going to worship him no matter what you do. And he'll deliver us from the fiery furnace. And if he doesn't, well, we're still not going to worship your peanut God. We're going to worship the true and living God, whether he kills us or saves us. And Nebuchadnezzar hated God. He didn't want anybody worshiping the true and living God. The wrath of man against God. And what was the result? God was glorified. Beloved, that's what we're talking about this morning. And we see example after example after example of that in the scriptures. The wrath of man shall praise thee. King Darius didn't want to put Daniel in the lion's den, but everybody else pretty much did. Did they not? What was the result of the wrath of man? Praise God. He's able to deliver his people from the lions. And the remainder of wrath he will restrain. Now, what is that referring to? Well, beloved, no weapon formed against his people will prosper. No physical weapon, no spiritual weaponry will prosper against his people. They tried to kill the Lord in their wrath against him before his time, and he walked through the midst of them because his time had not yet come. His hour was not yet come, not yet come because he restrained them. You see, nothing will be allowed except that which glorifies him. That's how our sovereign king reigns. And how much of your wrath in your lifetime, beloved? How much of your wrath? Let's face it. We weren't born loving God. Does someone say, I've always loved God? My friend, that's too long. And so how much of our wrath has he restrained in our lifetime? For our good, but also for his glory, for his praise, indeed for his ultimate exaltation. You see, this verse declares him very simply, very powerfully, to be the sovereign king of the universe. He's invincible. He can't be thwarted. None can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? For he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And when he is most greatly opposed, and it looks like the most damage is being done to him or his church, that's him working all things after the counsel of his own will to exalt himself, to further his kingdom, and to bless his sheep. And so just as the sweet psalmist of Israel says, in Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel, by his grace, beloved, we know him, and his name is great in his church. No matter how wicked this fallen world may be, he ever gathers his people together that we may know God and his great name, and we reverence him. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 11. Beloved, vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let, let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. All that be round about him, all that know him, all that reverence him, bring presents unto him. Now, not to be saved, 
but because you already are beloved. Our Lord declares, freely ye have received, freely give. What has our Heavenly Father given us, beloved? Do you know? Our Lord declares, Fear not, little flock, fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How does he give us the kingdom? Beloved, through the doing and dying of his darling son, the Father has given us the kingdom. And so our Lord declares, fear not, little flock, fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen.